You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. My name is Lorna Carson and I'm the director of the Trinity Centre for Asian Studies, which brings together our teaching and research in, in Chinese studies, Japanese studies and Korean studies. You're very welcome this evening, and I'd like to extend a special warm welcome to our visiting students from the US, from Champlain. Thank you very much for coming. It's a pleasure to have you here, and we hope that this will be the first visit of, of many um, to activities that we organize. Um, this is our Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. Um, it's a beautiful building, and we really enjoy the space, and we're grateful for, its, uh, for our venue this evening. I just invite you to take a look at the emergency exits, which are the way you came in and also to the rear of the building. And just as we get ready to, to hear this evening's talks, if you wouldn't mind switching off your mobile phones and tablets and just turning them to silent, if not, that would be very helpful. And um, a word of thanks to everyone who's helping us kick off uh, the Year of the Dog in style here in Trinity. Um, we're, we're organizing essentially three mini-talks on some topical issues from our Chinese studies faculty. So we have our, our director, Dr. Adrian Tian, and we also have Dr. Heidi Wan, and we have Dr. Isabella Jackson this evening. So it's um, not just the faculty, but also a lot of our students in the MPhil in Chinese studies who would be extremely helpful in volunteering this evening. Thank you for your time. We offer a one-year master's degree which studies contemporary China from a global comparative perspective. A lot of our students are here this evening, and some of you might wave. We've got Clara at the back, for instance. Yes, if you wave a hand, we will quite happily share details of what it's like to be a full-time master's student in Trinity in this program. We offer a number of scholarships. The closing deadline is the 30th of June. And if you'd like this evening, we'd love to talk to you more seriously about how you can advance your study of modern China. Um, speaking to one of the employers over uh, in the IFSC in our International Financial Services District, I was informed by the Bank of Ireland that our graduates in Chinese studies are like gold dust. So if you're interested in a career in an employable area, Chinese studies is for you. This is the first in our Trinity series of lectures. We are also collaborating with the Dublin Chinese New Year Festival. I'm anxious to find out more about the Year of the Dog, um, and I know that that's going to be done in an extremely diverse and interactive way. So I will, without any further ado, hand over to our Chinese Studies faculty, and I'd just like you to give them a warm round of applause and welcome this evening. Thank you very much. for that very lovely introduction. Uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Adrian Tian. Um, I'm the linguist um, uh, in the team, in our um, Chinese studies team. Uh, tonight, I'll be giving you um, a brief introduction of some of the cultural and linguistic um, backdrop to uh, what the year of uh, the dog is all about. Okay, so if you are a uh, linguist, don't expect to be hearing the really detailed linguistic analysis because this is a, a general introduction for everyone. But uh, first of all, um, this has uh, become like a bit of a tradition. I like to start um, the evening with uh, uh, this gesture, um, saying gongxi, gongxi. So you can do this to your neighbors, saying gongxi, gongxi, meaning congratulations 
or New Year's, um, well, it's not, not, not New Year's Day anymore, but we're still in the New Year period. But to do it the proper way, you, uh, for the gentleman, you wrap your left hand around um, the fist of your right hand. And for the ladies, you do it uh, the other way around, just to do it properly, you know, proper, being proper. <laughs> Right. So what the dog means to Chinese, what the dog means to me, uh, these were my two very lovely motifs, uh, uh, Jesse and Jingle, Jingle all the way, that I really miss. Uh, I had them back in Australia. Okay, uh, I'm not going to be speaking as an astrologist here, but I'm sure some of you, or many of you, have come to this evening wanting to find out a little bit about um, variety of the dog. So um, the dog being one of the 12 um, um, animals uh, in Chinese zodiac, uh, whatever he is, she is over there. Um, and if you're born in this year, uh, you're probably born in the year of uh, the dog. Um, so what does it mean? Well, um, I can't have to go to astrology to tell you the details. But um, uh, I can tell you that, uh, for example, if you are born in the year of uh, the dog, then this is one year you have to be a little bit more careful because uh, people say that uh, uh, when you have the dog uh, or the um, uh, dog deity as the presiding god uh, in a given year, then if you were born in the same um, uh, animal year, uh, you're in direct complication with uh, the deity. Uh, so you know, um, in Chinese culture, you know, we don't like uh, to face someone uh, uh, face to face, and so that's the cause of um, any potential confrontation. So just be careful if you are dark. <laughs> um, also, if you were born in the year of the dragon, see how that's in direct opposition to the dog. So dragons, be careful as well. Okay. Is that the case for everyone? If you're facing yours. Generally, yes, but uh, there, there are many more details than that. For example, uh, um, you are, if you are born in the year of the dog, you're not, necessi- you're not just a dog. Um, you are one of the five tribes of dogs. You can be um, one of the five elements. You can be one of the other elements. Um, so this year, is, um, um, this year um, happens to be um, the element of earth or soil. Uh, so this is why it's called earth dog. And so to really find out um, about your birth year, not only do you have to find out your animal sign, but also um, the corresponding uh, element. Okay, so um, why? Well, again, because you want to know uh, who you will be uh, who you'll be able to get, uh, get along with, and also who you might be impossible uh, com- conflict with. Because the idea is, uh, here you have the five elements, and um, um, let's take Earth, for example, uh, being the, the um, element of this year. Uh, you'll get along with uh, uh, people born in the year of um, the metal element, or people born in the year of uh, fire, uh, because uh, the idea is that uh, everything goes in harmony. If you're talking about the cyclic and the clockwise circle, 
um, maybe it was a anticlockwise. Um, but um, if uh, an element is uh, in opposition to that element, like um, wood or water, then you will be in uh, opposition conflict again. All right, so um, suppose you were um, born a water dog. So this year, just, um, just be a little bit more vigilant as well, because uh, the, uh, the um, um, elements don't necessarily get on. Because uh, for these reasons, uh, but I'm not going to go into the details uh, there. Okay, now I'm going to um, uh, start with some cultural information about uh, what the dog means to Chinese. Okay, so um, uh, first, the dog is a regal uh, imperial pet. So uh, this is uh, uh, Emperor, um, uh, Empress Dowager Cixi. And uh, here is a sketch of uh, the um, royal pet, the uh, Vietnamese, or in Chinese, uh, Haba Quan, Haba okay. And uh, this is a sketch by um, uh, Western visiting uh, artist to uh, the Forbidden City. So what's the connection there? Well, uh, one thing is that um, the Pekingese um, has uh, been a loved royal dog since Tang Dynasty. And amongst other breeds that were introduced later on. And um, uh, the other thing is that um, um, Cixi really loved uh, this kind of breed. And in fact, she uh, came up with something of a royal decree as to what the uh, Pekingese should look like. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, but you know, it's quite detailed. It says, let the lion dog be sworn. Let it wear the swollen cape of dignity around its neck. Let it display the billowing standard of pomp about its back. Let its face be black. Let its forefront be shaggy. Let its forehead be straight and low. low. Let its eyes be large and luminous. Uh, let its ears be, seen, be set like the cells of war junk. Let its nose be like that of the monkey god of the Indus. Um, let its forelegs be bent, so that it shall not decide to wander far, or live in imperial of his presence. Or so I won't go on, but you know, it gets pretty detailed and well, cultural, it's culturally based. Um, and uh, the key here is uh, the lion dog. The lion dog is um, another reason why the Pekingese uh, uh, was a lot as a breed because it reminded uh, the uh, imperial household of uh, you know, the subject guarding uh, lion statues outside the Forbidden City uh, or outside palaces. Now here's uh, um, a strange looking um, Chinese crescent. I've always been puzzled um, why it's called Chinese because I haven't looked up on its origin. It's not Chinese at all, but African in origin. Okay, so just in case you're wondering. But now back to its more, to the dog's more humble uh, origin. Humbles and chickens are best friends. I mentioned the chicken because uh, last year was the year of the G, roaster or chicken or however you, whatever other um, translation you like to use. And dogs and chickens are well, two of uh, the uh, little two 
six domestic animals that thrive in um, in, in a Chinese household in the agri in China's agri agricultural past. Even now, when you go to the countryside, you know these are the typical animals you might expect to see: the dog, the chicken roaming around the the uh, courtyard, as well as well maybe not necessarily horses and cows anymore, but uh, uh, the goat and the pig. And surely enough, you'll have plenty of uh, uh, images that attest to their friendship. And uh, there are many uh, EDMs and products to deal with um, not just the dog, but also the chicken. Like, uh, when a person achieves uh, the, the way, these chickens and dogs also ascend um, the heavens. Okay. And, um, when someone causes um, or wreaks havoc in a household, uh, that can be described as teacher warning. Chickens and dogs are disquiet. You know, think, you know, why not uh, horses and cows and pigs? Why these two animals? So this means that they have a special, they have a special cultural place in, in, uh, in the minds of Chinese. And the dog uh, was also a mystical, mystical beast. Uh, um, <coughs> this is uh, an image of the Xiao Tian Quan. Um, and that's an image of um, uh, the, uh, uh, the dog that ate uh, the sun. So um, the dog, as a kind of a mystical beast, was one uh, that was um, devout the sun. Or that uh, could, um, I was capable of, of uh, warning of evil. Okay, so uh, this is um, this is supposed to be a companion to one of the main godly heroes. Okay, so um, um, now I have to mention the uh, uh, gorillas a little bit because. Uh, did you know that uh, the dog, dog, dog's blood, uh, was also used uh, in Taoist uh, rituals? Um, they're not used all that often anymore, uh, and uh, uh, thank goodness not. But um, um, the dog, dog's blood, was um, um, supposed to have a um, certain power, potent yang energy. Yang is supposed to in in yang. Uh, Especially the blood of uh, black dogs uh, was uh, supposed to be particularly potent. Okay, so um, Taoists use um, this kind of uh, dog's blood as a last resort uh, in um, rituals against the wedding of uh, uh, ghosts. And this practice has a shamanistic origin. Another type of uh, blood was chicken's blood. So there you go, that's another. Uh, reason why you know dogs and chickens um, are friends forever. <laughs> oh, I don't know why I put that back here. Um, these are the uh, some of the perceived character uh, characteristics of uh, a dog, and consequently, uh, these characteristics have been extended to um, the supposed qualities of someone born in the of, of the dog. So, um, um, characteristics include liveliness, 
um, being energetic, being vigilant, and sometimes uh, probably overly so, to the extent that they're suspicious and insecure. Uh, they're honest and forthright, unpretentious, loyal, hardworking, uh, they're full of uh, good ideas, and they're, uh, um, they're, uh, they're supposed to have a good life. So, uh, that's what I mean, a life of abundance and prosperity. Uh, they can be very um, uh, strong-willed, though. I, has, I hesitate to, to, to use the word um, uh, stubborn, because stubborn is something else to me. Um, they can be pretty dogmatic and uh, uncompromising. But this is just a general, a very, very general um, uh, set of characteristics. Now, canine linguistics. Uh, firstly, um, let's talk about how the dog barks in, in Chinese. In Chinese, it's one one. But all of we take this for granted because in other languages, including English, look at the um, um, number of possible ways of uh, barking, like a dog. <laughs> Okay, um, this is supposed to be Irish, but I don't know how to produce it. <laughs> I'm just going by the spelling. Anyone who can produce, oh, who knows how to say this? Wow, wow, okay. And here, because we offer Korean, we have Korean Japanese in the city as well, so I offer this. Uh, for you to see as well, including one one. Now one is a homophone uh, with another Chinese word for um, a booming business or uh, prosperity. So often during this half the year, you see um, some clever companies making use of that uh, sound, uh, but using a different word for one. And uh, here's a famous uh, uh, biscuit brand one one. Um, and uh, you're supposed to, if you buy the ether, you're supposed to um, be prosperous, <laughs> become prosperous. And um, here's the image of the pineapple. And I put it there because um, in some dialects, um, the way it's pronounced sounds like uh, Wong. Onglai, onglai in Hokkien. Ong is supposed to sound like uh, Wong. Wong Wong in Hokkien. And that's why it's used. Now, um, to the actual words for dog, there are two possible candidates, but they're interrelated um, in every respect. Generally, uh, there's um, well, if we look at the first candidate, Chen, uh, it's usually confined to more technical language now, and usually we use it uh, in taxonomy, uh, you know, in a similar way as we say, we, we use the word canine. We don't use it a lot but we know we're talking about dogs. Uh, and uh, go is the more general word for dog. Okay, so here's um, the uh, uh, evolution of the character. But note this one in particular, because uh, this, is, um, this is actually um, the uh, radical version of the character. Uh, um, it's a radical uh, used in, um, in the other word, go. Okay, and uh, in fact, there's a host of uh, uh, characters using that radical. Uh, that radical uh, is uh, the, the, well, the chain. So how uh, you have the dog itself uh, go, that has that radical. And lamb, 
the world, which also has a radical. So well, presumably, these animals were perceived to share similar canine characteristics. Uh, so here you have badger, otter, and uh, some, but even interestingly, some birds like uh, to hunt, deer, and adjectives like hen. Uh, be being cruel or ruthless. All right, so uh, these are supposed to be uh, um, extended features of our dog. Now, there are many senses of um, uh, chain. I've organized them into four. So, kind of dogs, perceptual features of our dog, and speech of um, speech act of self depreciation, and uh, metaphorical extension. Let's look at some uh, actual examples. So, uh, kinds of dogs can be uh, can use chain as a suffix, uh, like a daolang chain, guide dog, mu yang chain, shepherd, police dog. And also, uh, you can use it for uh, dog breeds like uh, Maltese or Teeth. And chain too um, is based on the canine uh, features like canine uh, tooth. Uh, um, interestingly, Quan was used um, in in uh, in the past, but even that sometimes by people who want to be seen as proper to refer to their sons as um uh trans, literally uh dog son. Okay, and um, uh, his wife or uh, the person solving the organ called that Quan. Uh, but that's um, even more, that's become even more obsolete. But um, <coughs> then, uh, if someone says that to you, you can say, well, but that's not true because of Hu Hu, Wu Xuanzi. You know, you are so distinguished. Uh, how can your son be not like the father? You know, if the father is <coughs> like a tiger, then the son has to be something similar, not like a dog. And then meta metaphors using Chen. Although not as many metaphors as um, as uh, um, uh, that was involving dog. So San Jiaquan, for example, literally it's a dog who's just lost his family. So a person who, struck, uh, who struggles pointlessly in a desperate situation. There's a newly emerging word like batch, uh, which is an original Japanese word, referring to an unmarried female like her who's over 30 years of age. So this was a popular TV drama in, in, um, in uh, Chinese-speaking countries. <coughs> now, we come to go, and I think I have to wrap it up very soon. Um, so this is uh, the evolution of a uh, uh, character dog, with more general dog. Okay, as you can see, it hasn't changed all that much. And uh, I point uh, this radical again. This is. Uh, based on the uh, other word, the, uh, the word for canine, chain. And because it's, um, a general, it's uh, the general sense of the word go, it has many, many uh, meanings. So I don't have time to go into all of them in detail. Uh, I'll wish through them. So the first sense is uh, uh, you can, uh, uh, the first sense is go as a real dog. Okay, a dog, a dog which is loyal. Uh, go too, in the second sense, 
um, you're referring to dog-like attributes. Okay, so uh, something to do with dog, like a uh, dog eat dog, or pig sty, although we say a dog's home. Um, the third sense of go has to do with uh, well, just generally bad people, people who do um, bad deeds. Uh, for example, Go Kwan, literally a dog official in the last example, a bureaucrat who does bad things. Uh, the fourth sense of Go is used um, in swearing, um, especially as um, a productive um, uh, pre prefix, like Go Dong Xi, a dog of a thing you are, or Go Xue Pento, to spill a dog blood over someone, meaning uh, someone has just been told off in a big way. Uh, the fifth sense, uh, someone who's um, good at um, uh, battery. So go to it. Um, well, you can translate this uh, doggy uh, dog legs, but literally means to run errands for someone like a dog without asking questions. Um, um, you can have a go to Here we are venturing into the realm of uh, idioms and proverbs, you know, based on metaphorical extensions of, of uh, go. Go to is literally a dog-headed military advisor. So someone who, should, who gives advice when he shouldn't be, because he's clueless. Uh, the seventh sense, um, um, someone who is uh, reckless, irrational, impulsive. Uh, you know, including the things that uh, someone is capable of doing. So someone can be used so daring that um, um, you know, he, he can have um, a cold blood like uh, that of a dog. And someone who's uh, not good um, at uh, saying things, um, for example, this is uh, getting really ready. A dog opens a door screen with his mouth. So this, is, um, this refers to someone with all talk and no rule action. Nearly there. <laughs> so um, the nice sense of Fargo uh, has to do with power play. Namely, um, someone uh, who, who's looking down at someone else. Um, uh, so these are the um, related uh, idioms. And lastly, uh, someone who doesn't mind um, uh, his own business can be described as, say, or literally, a dog chases after mice when it should be the cat, but doesn't. Okay, so um, uh, the idea is quite obvious. Now, just uh, to conclude on newly emergent threats, gozai uh, is a word for paparazzi, but literally means a doggy. When you are talking about paparazzi, you're talking about being pursued by doggies, by a team of, team of dogs. Uh, I find the first one curious, because apparently Gaoxian, uh, literally dog blood, is, it's become quite a popular word uh, on Chinese internet. It uh, describes incredible um, uh, plots or uh, stories uh, in TV dramas or, or uh, films that don't make any sense at all. Okay, so, um, it's used more like an adjective rather than a noun. Thank you.
I'm the resident historian of China. Um, and I'm going to follow on from Adrian's talk in terms of what we associate with the year of the dog and then bring some historical um, analysis to this question and see whether our expectations of the dog um, and particularly the year of the earth dog in 2018 uh, might be borne out by historical precedent. Um, so as we've heard, um, there are 12 animals of the zodiac and there are also five elements. Um, and the dog is a work animal in China. So in addition to some of the things Adrian was saying about um, how it would affect individuals who are born in, in the year of the dog, we might also expect that in the year of the dog, people who work hard will be rewarded. Um, uh, the dog is associated with um, positive qualities like fair play and integrity. Dogs are loyal to their packs, um, and in the same way, um, uh, we might therefore see that the year of the dog would be a year of, um, uh, of equality. Um, and dogs are seen as auspicious animals that can bring peace. And then if you combine that with what we associate with um, the earth element, um, earth is a stabilizing and conserving force, and it produces metal in the zodiac cycle, um, which is another reason, in addition to all of those that Adrian pointed to, that it, it is associated with prosperity. So again, we think that the year of the Earth dog is looking pretty good um, in terms of stability and prosperity. Um, but as a historian, um, I would urge you, before we get too optimistic, um, to uh, listen to a word of caution. Because if we go back 60 years, 5 times 12 brings us to 1958, and I'm afraid the results are not good. Um, we'll be looking primarily this evening at the Great Leap Forward, um, which was launched in that year. Um, now, at the beginning of the year, things were looking good in China. The Chinese Communist Party had been in power for just under 10 years, and in that time they'd consolidated power. Um, they had eliminated um, uh, their major opponents within the country, and they'd also um, uh, um, done a lot to um, improve the prosperity of the country and um, uh, brought a lot of people out of, of poverty. Um, in uh, 1953, the, the first five-year plan was launched, which was a, an ambitious but manageable plan uh, focused very much on industry, on trying to build uh, large and medium-sized uh, factories and industrial infrastructure, um, and that this would uh, help strengthen the national economy. There was also some um, uh, work in terms of agriculture, but that was not the focus. There was very little investment in agriculture. But what you did get was the introduction of collectives, where um, uh, households would band together in a fairly sort of natural grouping about the size of a village or a few small villages, and they would pool their land, uh, their tools and weapons, um, but also uh, their manpower. So um, this actually worked pretty well. And through the course of the first five-year plan, you see um, industrial um, output increasing by 19%, with particular success in certain sectors. So coal production doubled, steel production tripled, um, and more modest but steady and still impressive growth in terms of agriculture, so 4% growth year on year in the mid-1950s. Um, what's later been termed the sort of little leap, uh, which is a harbinger of the Great Leap, um, was introduced in 1955, and this um, moved the collectives to um, a slightly more sort of socialist basis on which uh, what you put into the 
and collective would reflect what you got out um, in terms of uh, labor putting in and, and produce coming out. Um, so this was working well, but the authorities and the Chinese government were not satisfied with this steady growth, and they were looking for much more uh, rapid and impressive growth, not least because uh, Mao had paid a visit to um, uh, the Soviet Union, to uh, Moscow, um, to get to know Khrushchev, the new leader of the Soviet Union. And he was impressed by what he saw, uh, but he was also quite competitive by nature. And um, uh, when Khrushchev said that the Soviet Union was going to equal American economic production within 15 years, he wanted a similar ambition for China. So he said that China was going to equal uh, British um, economic um, output within 15 years. And this poster was produced to reflect that um, ambition in 1958. And some of the students in the room um, uh, will be able to use their Chinese language skills to, to read it. Um, uh, I have a horse, John, the stereotypical English name, John only has a donkey. Uh, wouldn't it be a shame if, um, if the donkey should move rather than the horse? So this is the, um, uh, the ambition that lies behind the Great Leap Forward. Um, and the, the major emphasis this time was going to be on the countryside, um, that everyone should be brought into industrial production, uh, and both the countryside and the city should really be front and foremost in terms of um, uh, economic development. And at the heart of that was the introduction of people's communes. So this would band together many of the already established collectives into enormous communes, um, uh, perhaps 20,000 households, um, 80,000 individual members in the largest of these people's communes. And unlike the collectives, this time the majority of what you got out in terms of grain and food and whatever else you might need um, was it, it distributed regardless of what you put in. Um, uh, so 60% is allocated um, on a supposedly equal basis, not always in practice, but only 40% is allocated in terms of um, the labour that you put in. So you see you've taken away a little bit of the incentive for people to work um, uh, very hard, perhaps, in these communes, at the same time as you've made them feel quite disconnected from the whole in a collective, you'd have known everybody. There's no hope you would know everybody in your commune. And so you have less of a sense of, um, of belonging here. But the idea was that you were bringing the efficiency of an industrial approach to agricultural production. You have economies of scale, enormous kitchens, enormous cafeterias, enormous nurseries to care for children, everything on, on an industrial scale. And this feeds into a core element of Mao Zedong thought, which was voluntarism. The idea is that if you believe something strongly enough, then it could be achieved. You could overcome impossible odds if you really um, put your, your heart and soul into it. And this is all of the posters I'm showing you are from 1958, the last year of the Earth Dog. Um, uh, this one's saying, Grave the wind and the waves, everything has remarkable abilities. So um, if, if uh, humanity can harness the power of nature, uh, then great things can happen. And this led to um, some uh, uh, problematic policies. For example, um, this is um, taken from what was uh, held up as a model county, uh, where productivity was supposed to be through the roof. 
and good practices start to be um, rolled out from, uh, from this county. For example, digging very deep channels to lay fertilizer three feet deep um, in the uh, false belief that that would um, uh, enrich the soil better. Um, and uh, very densely planting crops. So first of all, they double planted, then they triple planted, the idea being uh, that there would be a, a sort of um, almost like the, the belief in, in cooperativism uh, that that would apply to crops as well, that they would be able to work together. But of course, you know, as any farmer would know, any gardener would know, if you, if you plant too densely, uh, then this is not going to work. And um, uh, sure enough, uh, the crops that, uh, that were, were planted in this way were <coughs> failed. Um, and trying to get everybody to engage in industrial production led to the production of what are called backs, uh, backyard steel furnaces. Um, the, the call went out every household to have its own furnace. And so people, um, this is you know, one commune set of furnaces, each household supposedly tending one. And um, a huge amount of destruction followed this, cutting down trees. Um, in some provinces, as many as half of the trees were cut down to, to provide fuel for these furnaces. Um, but also people, uh, if there was iron ore locally, then that's one thing. But if there wasn't, people burnt down uh, their pots, their pans, their bicycles, whatever they could. Um, and what they got was pig iron. They didn't actually get steel. And um, so, uh, so this was useless. It also meant that manpower that might have been devoted to um, better work um, was, was deviated to these, um, uh, these plans. Um, there's a therefore devastating environmental impact, and, and my colleague Heidi would know much more about um, the impact of environmental uh, on the environment of, of policies of um, uh, modern and uh, recent Chinese history. But um, uh, between the sort of cutting down of trees, you have vast desertification uh, taking place, which uh, leads to um, uh, winds and dust uh, covering the crops and makes um, it much more difficult um, for, for farmers. There's an increase in pests as a result of some of these policies. And then there's also individual households suffering as well. According to Frank Dakota, up to a third of individual people's houses were uh, also cut down in this process, sometimes for, for fuel, sometimes for rationalization, put everybody in, in, in uh, uh, shared accommodation, uh, but also sometimes to punish them. Um, and so the consequence of this uh, was famine. It's difficult to measure the effect on productivity because everybody was exaggerating what they were producing. Um, targets that were completely unmanageable were set and everybody claimed to be exceeding them because you'd be getting into trouble if you, if you didn't. Um, but what we can uh, see with a degree of accuracy is a plummeting birth rate and uh, an, a terrible rise in the death rate. Now, again, it's very difficult to get a handle on exactly the scale of this. The official total sometimes is 15, sometimes is 20 million deaths. Um, uh, but in, in China, officially, this is three years of natural disaster. Um, Frank de Carter, um, who I've mentioned, suggested that there were 45 million excess deaths. Um, but in that total, he's including um, people who perhaps were not born. Um, because of the plummeting birth rate, as well as those who are dying. It should be borne in mind that, as in, is always the case in famine, 
there is uh, more people dying from, from disease and so on that they are vulnerable to due to malnutrition uh, rather than directly from starvation. But it, it, it was, um, even if we take a sort of mid-level figure of perhaps 30 million uh, people dying from this, that would make it the worst famine in human history. So, uh, so things certainly did not go well. And as a consequence of this, for a long time, um, the leadership tried to resist the, the you know, kind of uh, the suggestion that the policies weren't going well. But Mao did actually um, step down as chairman early in 1959, continuing um, as, as president, but stepping down as party chairman, which is really um, an acknowledgement um, of, um, of the failure of his policies. Um, so to try and end on a slightly more positive note, um, I think this would suggest that we shouldn't have faith in 2018 because it's the year of the Earth Dog, but certainly you can see that uh, China has been leaping forward in uh, recent decades. Uh, the, the most rapid and largest scale alleviation of poverty in human history has taken place in China since the 80s, um, and this is the tallest building in China, the second tallest in the world uh, there in Shanghai, um, which I think sort of stands as um, as a, a great monument to the development that we've seen in China in recent years, in great contrast to what we uh, can look back on 60 years ago. So, um, so whilst I've perhaps uh, taken us away a little bit from the positivity of the year of the Earth Dog, um, I think there's every reason to expect that 2018 will be a good year for China. Thank you. Of whether animals could be regarded as moral agents, 
whether animals could understand the social codes, whether we can communicate with them and tell them what's actually going on. When we talk about rights, we also talk about duties, so that's one way of looking at this debate. On the other hand, we have a more like biological debate looking at species, different species. Do we see different species in the same manner? Do we um, require same standards to other species? So um, that's the two kind of main uh, framework uh, under which these animal rights have been discussed. Um, however, I'm not a philosopher or biologist, and uh, interestingly, in, in Asia and, and Chinese context, the cultural and political dimension uh, prove far more exciting and important. So this is the angle which I aim to uh, look at today. Um, since the uh, 1980s, the Chinese government has um, carried out a couple of uh, policy framework to um, um, raise awareness of animal protection, starting from wild animals. Uh, for instance, in 1989, the first law on animal was uh, enacted. It's called Law of the People's Republic of China on the Protection of Wildlife. And in this uh, legislation, Article 3 has clearly identified that wildlife are resources um, owned by the state. So in, in a way, the kind of utilitarian logic is already enshrined in the first legislation to protect animals. And those wildlife are owned by the states. Um, and also, as China uh, acceded to the some international environmental conventions, such as Convention on Biological Diversity, which was ratified in uh, 1993, the Chinese government also felt pressure to invest concrete GDP on the research and development to protect animals. Um, so the latest national report submitted to the Convention of, on Biological Diversity promised 2.5% of GDP in the research and development of animal protection to improve the animal biodiversity, to, to preserve biodiversity. Um, and um, another very important uh, um, step forward is uh, how we treat animals and how we process uh, animal meat. Uh, so in 1998, there was a um, kind of di a discussion about how to administer a hog slaughter because China is a big consumption of pork and uh, it is uh, of vital importance to make sure that uh, the way um, swine are uh, slaughtered will not um, pose any threat to food safety. So around the concern of food safety, uh, this regulation was introduced and in this legislation, in this regulation, um, uh, the humane slaughter phrase was introduced in this regulation um, because of experts' uh, suggestions that if we don't treat animals uh, well, if we don't improve the rearing conditions, human beings will bear the cost of mistreatment of animals. So that gave a lot of motivation for the government to encourage the so-called humane slaughter. However, in this legislation, it's only encouraged, not enforced, to administer humane slaughter, which means merciless killing to minimize the pain, uh, whereas killing uh, animals. Only 10 years later will uh, this program initiated because of the availability of uh, uh, expertise and know-how uh, and, and experiences in administering humane slaughter. So 10 years ago, before that, um, it's a, a very, it was a very new concept and nobody actually knew how to deal, how to slaughter
takes time for the practice to come uh, to match the regulations ideal. And, and the first time animal welfare was introduced is in its uh, guideline, which has a much weaker um, kind of uh, enforcement uh, power in uh, compared to law or conventional regulation. So it suggests that um, the human being should treat lab animals in a very humane manner and also to improve the welfare of those, uh, of those uh, web an uh, lab animals as well. Um, the most recent um, policy development uh, is the um, discussion on the law of People's Republic China on the protection of animals. Um, this law has not yet uh, come into force, and this has been introduced in 2006, and some experts drafted the law in 2009, and there was a very heavy discussion about whether we should carry out a comprehensive animal uh, protection law, whether it is too early to do such a thing, because we have other issues to care about. So, so far, we only have a draft version of the law on the protection of animals, and there is no follow-up progress due to various concerns, which I'm going to elaborate later. Um, so this slide gives you a, a, an idea of how animal rights, uh, or animal protection, uh, in, in a broad sense, um, is um, kind of becoming an important issue on the policy uh, political agenda on China. And we can see various efforts of the Chinese government to introduce either incentives or punishment to enhance uh, the treatment of animals. Um, pushing the envelope or, or uh, raising further awareness are, uh, of animal welfare and also treatment of, well, uh, well, of both wildlife and domesticated animals started in the 1990s uh, when the discussion on wildlife conservation, companion and lab animals uh, began. And what is very important is the involvement of international NGOs, international environmental activists. Um, what I want to mention particularly is uh, this uh, lady here, uh, uh, Jill Robinson. He was, she, sorry, she was the president of Animals Asia Foundation. And she uh, made a documentary about the bear farming in China, which revealed how brutal um, the Chinese uh, tried to extract uh, resources from bear and how, uh, kind of, um, uh, how much uh, brutality uh, is involved. And this documentary raised awareness on the international level as well as on the domestic level to think about how to make sure that animals will be treated uh, in, in a more, much more humane way. Um, and so this is a picture of uh, Jill and uh, uh, bears. And there's another very important in, in, international NGO called People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals Inside Chinese Fur Farms. So in a way, this international pressure has pushed the Chinese uh, society and also government to rethink the relationship between the Chinese and also the, the animals in general. For instance, uh, one year after Jill made this documentary, the Chinese government agreed to limit the licensing of fair farms in China. So that's one concrete uh, progress uh, because of the pressure introduced by uh, Jill from international uh, environmental activists. Um, so with the international pressure, the domestic audience also picked up this issue and started to discuss whether this animal um, mistreatment has projected China in a very <coughs> negative light. 
Um, so the media exposure definitely uh, help setting the agenda, set the agenda, and also the younger generation, they become very um, progressive in terms of um, framing the issue and also to uh, bringing attention to the uh, abuse and mistreatment of animals. Um, there are two uh, news uh, kind of items which even further push the, uh, uh, the discussion. So one, uh, one is from the news article in 2002, uh, a student from Tsinghua University, one of the best universities, he went to the zoo and he poured a sulfuric, sulfuric acid on bear just to test whether they have a acute olfactory senses as the textbook, as the textbook suggested. Uh, so that uh, is very shocking because he is one of the, kind of the elite students in the best university. Still, he could go to the zoo and pour some a very harmful um, solution to um, protected species. And he was, of course, fine and suspended from university, but that case indicated the level of um, ignorance in terms of uh, animal protection. Um, apart from the traditional media exposure, uh, internet also played a very important role in uh, raising uh, alert of possible human abuse of animals and um, how to put those people in justice. So there's a picture which has been uh, which went viral on the YouTube where a, a lady uses her high heel to crush a cat, uh, a very innocent cat. And that also was a very, stirred very, very emotional response among the netizens. And they wanted to track down who this lady was because the lady uploaded the, the, the picture by herself. So he didn't, she didn't actually realize the severity of this animal mistreatment. And she thought that was funny. So uh, because of this different kind of uh, exposure, media exposure and internet exposure, more discussion uh, emerged on the Chinese society and also tried to push for policy framework uh, to, to follow suit. <coughs> so uh, I'm going to briefly introduce two sides of the argument, those who support animal rights protection and those who are against. By the way, animal rights is not in any way enshrined in Chinese legislation. We have not yet moved towards animal rights kind of discussion. We're still staying at the animal welfare uh, discussion to how to um, uh, advance the uh, kind of improve their conditions. So one side kind of arguing for animal rights protection would be that uh, the mistreatment of animals is very damaging to the national image and also to the reputation of China. The Chinese people were portrayed in a very barbaric um, manner, and they just eat everything. So that's kind of a very, very negative um, um, uh, portrayal of Chinese in general. That's why we have to plug China into the international standard and also bring the Chinese politics into the general debate of animal rights protection. And the other side of argument is that saying that Chinese culture, so animal rights is not a foreign concept. It is deeply rooted in the Chinese tradition and culture. We can trace back to Buddhism and also perhaps Taoism, even though Adrian mentioned that in Taoist ritual they use dog blood, but in general in philosophy uh, they would treat animals and human beings as all equal, and Buddhists even uh, kind of advocate a vegetarian practice or vegan practice. So this has been a very Chinese concept, which we could push forward instead of regarding that as a foreign Western concept. And the last but not least important and powerful argument is that if we don't treat animals well, 
then human beings will bear the consequence because we're at the top of the food chain. So uh, if, if we kill pigs uh, when they're in pain, their meat doesn't taste good, and also it may be releasing toxic substances to human beings. So if we don't treat them well, we will bear the final cost. So that's the reasons why various uh, advocates would uh, push the agenda of animal rights protection forward. Uh, the other side of, um, um, of the argument uh, is that human animal rights is too futuristic for China. It's not yet, we're not yet at the stage of talking about animal rights because the human rights hasn't been very well practiced and uh, animal rights should wait. Uh, another reason is uh, that, um, which is counter-arguing the Chinese tradition uh, argument, uh, is that it is a way for the Western society to exert more pressure on China, and it is a way for the Western society to dictate what we eat and how we regard our own national resources. So it's kind of a taps into the nationalistic discourse and also taps into this conspiracy theory. It's just another way for the Western society to manipulate our meat consumption, for instance. Um, the third, uh, and more, and also related to the second argument is that um, as a developing country, uh, China still yearns for economic prosperity, and if we kind of really legislate uh, bear farming, for instance, um, in, the in, in, the, in the legal framework, then we're talking about the damage bringing to the far bear farm industry, which is a very big taxpayer, to, uh, which generates a lot of revenue to local governments. Uh, and because the Ch in Chinese traditional medicine, um, a lot of um, animal parts also provide medic medicinal uh, values. That's why uh, cracking down on kind of bear farming or brutality of bear farming would also mean uh, damaging local economy. So that linkage hasn't been very uh, uh, efficiently dealt with in the Chinese uh, policy framework. And the last two points uh, is also, are also very important, so China is still hungry. As uh, my colleague Isabella mentioned, the memory of 1958 was still very fresh in uh, the older generation's um, um, life. Like my grandma uh, always rationed food towards the end of each meal, making sure that none of us uh, will suffer hunger, even though it has been the, the Great Famine has been um, passed uh, through for four or five decades. And there is also a, uh, the Chinese government is also very worried about the lack of food, uh, so the food security in China. There is a strategic pork reserve uh, in China to make sure if there is a, a shortage of provision of pork, then the Chinese population will not suffer too much. Um, last but not least, is more of a, also a cultural ideological uh, perspective. Uh, in Mao's era, uh, so in, uh, in, in era under the leadership of Mao Zedong, love of pets are usually regarded as bourgeois and rebellious, and also as sometimes you're, you're labeled as rightist. So this kind of mentality still uh, has been defining the, the, the debate between the uh, pet lovers and also those who uh, strive for the argument of economic prosperity and also uh, an, uh, human being first. Animals should wait, animal rights should uh, wait. Um, so the, um, I want to conclude with, a, uh, of course, some hopeful remarks and also a revealing of uh, who is actually winning the argument. According to a survey conducted by 2014, um, the majority of the population is not very familiar with the term of animal welfare, not to mention animal rights. 
So a lot of education will be needed to uh, introduce this concept and also to decide how to move the discussion forward. Um, but if you explain to uh, the respondents interviewees, then uh, over 70% of the respondents would claim would are, are kind of willing to improve the rearing conditions of domestic animals um, for food safety purposes. Um, and um, a, a swapping majority also wanted to pass some kind of legislation to improve more effectively animal welfare. So um, even though 45% they don't want to pay uh, more price for high welfare animal projects, uh, but with more information and more education, this may be changing. So the conclusion is that China is at a very early stage of animal rights protection, but let's remain hopeful when we have more education and more awareness campaign. Thank you.